In recent years, the idea of house flipping has gained prominence in our nation. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, you may be thinking some pretty crazy thoughts right now. House flipping buys a home with the intent of renovating and selling, gaining a profit. Last year, flips accounted for 8.4% of all home sales in the U.S. As I mentioned, this interest in flipping continues to grow. In fact, one cable channel provides hours of endless entertainment to feed your inner consumerism. But both unsuccessful and successful flips, they have things in common. A successful home flip tends to buy those houses at just the right price. They buy in the right neighborhood. They improve, but don't over-improve. And they tend to sell pretty quickly. The unsuccessful home flip has its own set of marks. They typically involve bad math, renovation and experience, skipping permits, and of course, thinking you can do it in 60 minutes minus commercials. You see, there's a way to achieve the right outcome, and there are many ways not to. And this is true for building a house, and it's true for building a church. God has given Jesus Christ as the cornerstone for his church. Built off of Christ, we are properly aligned. We are in the right places, and we're generating a successful return. But built off our own ideas, foundations begin to crack. Elements tend to go missing, and our usefulness, well, it plummets. See, just about every Christian will have some idea about what he or she thinks the church should be. That is good, we should. But we want those thoughts to align with Scripture. It's healthy to consider what we ought to be, but we always want to consult the Bible. What is the designer's plan for his house? What's the floor plan? Is it built off Christ? Well, this morning we're going to tour two different houses. One rises, built off of the cornerstone, and another fumbles. It rejects the cornerstone and ultimately finds doom. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8. through 8. Open up your Bibles with me. As you know, we're working our way verse by verse through this book of 1 Peter. If you're visiting with us, we like to go slower through the scriptures, tend to go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. We're in no particular rush in the era of the hurry up, in the era of the text message. We tend to go a little bit longer and a little bit deeper. In this passage, and in the one that will follow next week, Peter shares something of our purpose, what we're here for, what we are to do. The aim of our existence, we might say. And Peter, like he's done before, is always tapping into that rich imagery to explain it. Last time he taught us through newborn babies. Today he teaches us through living stones, if you can imagine it. And next time he'll teach us through a royal priesthood. Well, let's pick up in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. We'll read through verse 8. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up 
as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they are also appointed. Well, we begin with the first three verses. This is the house that God builds. The house that God builds. This house consists of living stones, and they are stones who have worth, purpose, and fulfillment. Peter begins writing in verse 4 of Jesus Christ. I believe the hymn of verse 4 is referring to Jesus, going back to the Lord in verse 3. And you notice in verse 4, this living stone, it has three characteristics. The stone is rejected, chosen, and precious. Our Bible, throughout the scriptures, uses this word stone both literally and figuratively. The New Testament in particular loves the image to, to describe Jesus, and we'll see that developed later in our message. Peter basically sees Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. This idea of stone, it points to the Lord's stability. It points to his strength. It points to his steadfastness. It might even point to his destructive power. That the stone is living, well, that tends to point to his resurrection. That's a little different than we might imagine. After all, a stone is cold and lifeless, but Jesus is anything but that. This living stone then bears three marks. He's rejected by men. Jesus predicted this would happen. He perhaps knew better than anyone else, even his opponents who would reject him. What did he say? He said in Luke 17, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The stone is secondly choice, choice in the sight of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Here Jesus is presented as excellent and as select. And not only was he our chosen Savior, but he is the best choice, the the prime choice at that. And we see thirdly, he is precious. Precious in the sight of God, says Peter. Jesus is of high value. And that reminds us how precious Jesus the Son is to God the Father. For example, we think of his sufferings and his agonies on the cross. That impacted Jesus, to be sure, but... But God the Father, he too felt that. Jesus the Son being so precious in his sight. But notice what Peter does now with this. In verse 5, he applies this metaphor to you. You also are living stones. And this worth ascribed to Jesus is ascribed to you. And this occurred at the moment you came to faith. 
To borrow from verse 3, that different metaphor, when you tasted the kindness of Jesus. And as a result, in verse 4, coming to him, this is a, a present tense, an ongoing, a repetitive pattern. You came to Christ, we might say, and you come to Christ. You come as living stones. It sounds a bit like a paradox, doesn't it? Like an oxymoron. How can a stone be living? I mean, we began to put this together a bit already as it applies to Jesus. But there's more to say about this, especially how this applies to building. Again, with a stone, we're not going to observe a stone and remark, my, how, how lively that is. Look how animated this stone is. It's just the opposite, right? We would look at a stone and and remark how cold and lifeless and stagnant it is. But I wonder if that is not precisely the point Peter makes. You see, the living stone is a metaphor not only for Jesus, but also for you and I. Because the Christian is just as unlikely and impotent and inadequate to go from death to life, as a stone is to go from cold to living. These things, we might say, do not happen. But the Lord can make them happen. The Lord makes them occur. He can do it. Every Christian is an example of that. John the Baptist declared to those smug Pharisees, from these stones, God can raise up children. And that's precisely what God does. He does this through Jesus Christ, imparting life to us. He makes us like Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God is in the process of making us, like Jesus, living stones. Jesus endured rejection. We endure rejection. Jesus is described as a stone. You and I are described as stones. Jesus is alive. We are living stones, resurrected to newness of life already. But to dial it in further, Peter writes of a very specific stone. We call it a stone of a special kind. The word he uses here is a stone used for building. I'd say it this way. Think small scale in terms of stone versus big scale. I mean, building stones could still be quite large, but we're talking about a smaller building-type stone. Now, we can contrast that with a large rock, bedrock, for example. In Matthew chapter 26, 27, verse 60, Matthew describes the tomb where Jesus is buried. Joseph of Arimathea laid the body of Jesus in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. That's the word for big rock. You can imagine that. There's this big rock, and he carves out one tomb. He then rolled a large stone, a different word, a smaller stone, against that entrance. And I draw the distinction this morning because there are many stones. There are living stones. And for these stones, for you and I to do what God wants us to do, each of us must be properly prepared and shaped. We must have the the correct cut. 
And each of us must be aligned. Everyone has its place. That's what Peter is saying when he writes this passage, when he speaks of that stone. In fact, we ought to see God himself here as the master builder who is putting these stones in their proper place. He's selecting a few out of, out of the many and you're all choice stones. And what he's doing is going to work. And he's fashioning you and I. He's, he's grinding off a little there and he's chipping off some here. He's giving spiritual gifts and putting us in our place and we're fulfilling our role when we're doing it beside other stones. Each has great worth because they're modeled off that living stone, capital L, capital S. We should see then this morning here that our worth is who we are in Jesus Christ. We are living stones of a living stone. And that's a great reminder this morning as we sang our song that our worth is in nothing else but Jesus Christ alone. That our worth is not in who our children are or how they're turning out. That our worth is not in how we're doing as parents. Our worth is not in who our parents are. Our worth is not in our careers. It's not in our income. It's not in our personnel evaluations. Our worth is not in how we did raising the kids last week. Our worth isn't how we're doing in our Bible reading plan this week. Our worth is in how consistently we do devotions. Our worth isn't in our Facebook friends or our likes or even our dislikes. Thankfully, much to our relief, our worth is not based on or founded in or determined by or measured from or reported from anything else in this world. That should be a breath for all of us because our worth is in Jesus Christ alone and not in how we're doing or how we're looking or how things are going. It's a breath of fresh air for the believer. There's a great freedom in this because as we've tasted of the kindness of Jesus, we've received the worth ascribed to him. God has given that to us in Jesus, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. That brings us then to a purpose. Our life has a purpose. It has a new purpose. Christ provides purpose. And it is for you and I to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Each of you, stone by stone, verse 5, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Now, you need to know that that work is passive. It means that God is doing that work. He's the one building the house. It's not up to you to figure it out and build the house. He knows who he wants where. And as we said, he's shaping and forming the house. He's, he's selecting who he wants in that house. And you should know as well in verse 5, you may have observed that, that Peter's imagery overlaps here. In verse 5, we're both the stones that form the house as well as the priesthood that serves in the house. That brings us then to the church. Peter speaks here of the church, this idea of, of stones put together to build a house. It's a good reminder this morning that the church is not a building. We use that word, right? We're going to go over to the church. Well, we, we get it. We know what we mean when we say that, but in the Bible, it's not that. The church is not an event on Sunday morning. Again, 
I know it's come to mean that, saying I attended church, I went to an activity or an event. We, we get that. There's grace. The Bible doesn't use the word that way, however. We also should note that, more narrowly, the, the church is not the message or the sermon. Um, and people may think that if I get the sermon in or I get the message, I've done church. The Bible doesn't use the word that way either. The church isn't a denomination, but simply said, the church is just a people. But that's everything. The church literally is an assembly. It's a group of people. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, he writes about the church and helps clarify this concept. He says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Okay, so far you can hear his emphasis on, on people, the assembly, the group. He says this household has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Here he's also using that stone imagery. He says then, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And three times in those verses, Paul used the word you. And every time we encounter this in our study, every time he used it here, it's the second person plural, meaning you all, or as they say in the South, y'all. There you go. And that means that Paul's saying of this assembly, this group, that you all are no longer citizens, and that you all are, excuse me, you are all no longer strangers, but you are all citizens, and you all are being built together into a dwelling of God. Now, the trick here is to keep that in mind as we read, because we like to read through Western eyes. It's very normal. We're individuals. When I think about this passage, I write or I read, I am no longer an alien. I am a fellow citizen, and that's true. We are all that as individuals in Christ. God redeems individuals. But this text, again, it's more than that, and Peter is saying more than that. Certainly, again, there is an individual aspect to this. Every church is a group of redeemed people, meaning individuals that God has set in place. There's also a universal aspect, the church of all time, all believers from all eras. But then there's this local aspect, Emmanuel Bible Church, the group, the assembly. We call it the corporate aspect. It's a community aspect. In fact, it is difficult to make a case for Christian faith done in isolation. There's no category in the New Testament for churchless Christianity. That's how important the corporate aspect is. The group, as Peter and as Paul have written about this. To borrow more of our imagery, no house consists of just one member. In Peter's day, there were multiple stones that were fitted together to build the house. In our day, we have Stones or, or brick or wood or multiple materials, they're all brought together to build the house. But we also notice in this passage that there's a shift. There's a shift in his imagery. 
Because you're not only a stone in Peter's eyes, you're also a priest. And I would imagine that Peter saw something particularly redemptive about the priestly office in his day. Now, we recall that priests were around during the time of Jesus. They were the religious leaders. They were supposed to be the go-between between God's people and God himself. As it turns out, they make better walls than they do windows. God, in the person of Jesus, received regular opposition from the priests. They challenged him on the Sabbath practice. Peter would have remembered their appearance by torchlight in Gethsemane. The high priest himself, he presided over the trial of Jesus. And Peter's saying in this passage that better priests have arrived, namely you. And it's so much better than it was in the Old Testament. Back then, they donned a breastplate an ephod or a vest, a robe, a tunic, a turban, a sash. You don't have to wear that to come in here. They would have been consecrated, sacrificing a bull and sacrificing two rams. Blood then applied to their right ear, their right hand, and their right toe. And that blood then would have been sprinkled all over their clothing, a perpetual reminder of the consecration and the setting aside of their priestly office. What did the priest do? The priest was a butcher offering sacrifices. The priest was a professor, teaching the law. The priest was a doctor, declaring who was healthy, who was unhealthy. And he had to be of the tribe of Levi, and he had to obey the law to a T. Just ask Nadab and Abihu. These two men in the Old Testament were consumed by fire for offering strange fire. Just ask Hophni and Phinehas. They were killed off for their immorality as priests. Just ask King Saul, who was stripped of his kingship for playing priest. All of that now, friends, is concluded. We are served by a greater high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's made you priest. The purpose, then, is to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. Now notice what is the same and what is different. Sacrifices can still be acceptable or not. They still go to God, but to be acceptable, they must be offered through Jesus Christ. Millions every day, millions of good deeds are done by very well-intentioned religious people, but they will not be acceptable to God because they do not come through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is indeed the dividing line and the great mediator. Sacrifices are still offered. They were back then, they are today. Today, Paul calls them, or Peter calls them, spiritual sacrifices. We're built into a spiritual house. We offer spiritual sacrifices. I think what Peter means here is that in in contrast to the the physical temple and the the rams and the bulls, we now have a, a spiritual dimension to what we do. And that means that you and I can fulfill our purpose, we can fulfill our priesthood without ever touching an animal or lighting a fire or using a knife. So what exactly are these spiritual sacrifices then? 
what are these spiritual sacrifices that we are to be doing? Well, the Bible lists a few different ways that we might approach this. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And I take that to mean that that all of who we are can be given to God as a sacrifice. We can use out all of our days and our abilities and our talents and our time. We can use that for the glory of God. That is a spiritual sacrifice. Elsewhere in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul calls financial gifts a sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, the author calls even sharing your stuff a sacrifice. I would view these examples as a sampling that the Bible isn't giving us an exhaustive, comprehensive list of every potential sacrifice, maybe only a few, but rather I think they provide an illustration. I think they show us that anything that we do can be done for the glory of God. Anything we do can be a spiritual sacrifice acceptable through Jesus Christ. In fact, that's God's intent for our lives. What does he say? Do all for the glory of God. But at the same time, remember that this passage is about the church. The building of a house by God. The placement of living stones. God putting each of you in your place. And we're to function as priests, sacrificing unto God. Let me ask you this morning then, have you found your place in your church? And if you're visiting with us this morning, have you found your place in your local church? that place that God has for you among the many, among the other living stones. Now keep in mind how we answer that will we'll bear all the marks of the passage we just reviewed. First of all, you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Um, you've now shared the affection of God for his son Jesus. You see Jesus as choice and as precious, a, a Lord of great value. God has taken you secondly and placed you alongside other stones. He's building up his church, and you're part of that. And then thirdly, you're offering up spiritual sacrifices. You're active. You're involved. God is building up a spiritual house, and you're part of that. And I think one healthy heart check is to ask ourselves along the way, as we're growing and maturing, we're, we're asking ourselves less, what, what do I want to do? And asking ourselves more, what does God want me to do? I think that's a healthy way to think about our spiritual sacrifice in the holy temple. In some cases, the priest consumed the sacrifice, but, but in many cases, he was offering it. That's a good way for us to consider where we are in the scheme of things, how we're part of the house God builds, how we're sacrificing. Well, thirdly, in all of this, this notion of priesthood and and sacrificing, there's going to be a fulfillment that comes from that. We see in verse 6 that this stone, it, it brings fulfillment. Peter now goes back to that imagery, the imagery of a stone. And he returns to his discussion on Jesus Christ. Verse 6 will be the beginning. It's the first of three Old Testament quotations. And what Peter does, he goes back and, and he brings them over to enhance this teaching, 
to, to prove his point, so to speak. In Isaiah chapter 28, God predicts the destruction of Judah. This was God's favorite nation, yet they persisted in a covenant disobedience. And apparently in doing this, they believed that they were untouchable. In other words, if we're God's chosen people, what do we need to worry? Well, God would flip the house. And what he says should sound familiar. Peter knew this passage. He quoted it back in verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, its choice and precious in the sight of God. Peter quotes Isaiah in verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Here we learn more about this choice stone. Peter elaborates. It's going to be built in Zion. It's another word for Jerusalem. We know that's true of the ministry of Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. And when buildings were built in the time of Peter, this cornerstone was extremely important. It's less so today. Today it's a little more ornamental. Maybe we chisel a date in it or something to that effect. Sometimes people hide things in it as a time capsule. But the cornerstone in Peter's day, it was huge. In the first place, this was the stone laid. Every stone that came in that building, it was laid after the cornerstone. This stone controlled the lines of the building. This single stone was used to place every other single stone off of its placement. Every wall every angle. It was aligned off the cornerstone. It was extremely labor-intensive to form because he had to get it just right. This entire building then, it relied on the cornerstone for strength and for support. And so it is this morning with the church. You can imagine how that imagery applies to us today. Living stones, Peter said, they're not going to be put to shame. They're going to lean upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and they will not be disappointed. Peter's so certain of this, in verse 6, he ends the verse using a double negative. He says, they will never indeed, it's like saying the word no twice, they will no not be disappointed. No Christian will ever regret trusting in Christ. And that's not to say that in this life, It's going to be easy. And that's not to say that we won't suffer and endure hard times. But we will not be disappointed in our selection of Jesus. And we will not be ashamed to be numbered among his people. We are built upon Jesus Christ. And there's great joy in that. And great fulfillment and great satisfaction. This is the house that God builds. This is the house that consists of worth and purpose and fulfillment. And remember for a moment Peter's audience. They experienced persecution for their faith. If you look back at 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 2, or chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2, they're they're aliens, they're they're pilgrims, they're sojourners, they're, they're foreign to this land, to this world. And they're feeling the brunt of that, they're They're persecuted for believing in Jesus Christ. And for all this talk about you and I this morning being priests and offering spiritual sacrifices, for us rallying together as God's people, 
Again, we're not an event. We're not a building. We're a people. I think that Peter's audience had very little choice. Because I think persecution has a way of driving God's people together. I think that we could say that they needed each other. And I think that you and I in our day, we have a choice in a way that that Peter's audience did not. And and they, like we, we we have a decision about how we're going to interact with the the local body of Christ and to what extent we're going to participate and be involved. But I'll tell you, persecution drives Christians together. And I'm not sure that we've quite felt that yet. I think we might. Increased persecution is on its way, and I don't say that to get us all riled up or to get us overexcited. I think that there's ways to look in the news to see that. I think there's real reporting on that. I think you can look at historic Christianity on that. I think you can read the Bible on that. We're not there yet, but we're moving there. So I want to know this morning, not if you're ready for persecution, because I'm not sure that we are, but instead, do you see the value of what God is doing here for when it comes? Do you see the value of being placed alongside other living stones for when it comes? There's a value in this church that's going to be most appreciated, I would say, when the storms come. Right now, it's more of a drizzle, but the downpour is coming. Do you see the value in what Peter says in chapter 2? So this is the house that God builds, as Peter writes. And this is built off Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And the thing about this cornerstone is that everyone's going to come in contact with it those that are of the house, and those that are not. In verses 7 and 8, Peter writes about the house that men build. If our first few verses are the house that God builds, this is the house that men build. This is built of stumbling stones, stones of disbelief and doom. Peter, again, in verses 7 and 8, quotes from the Old Testament. He's going to cite first Psalm 118. Peter would have heard Jesus quote this during his ministry, We already mentioned that Jesus predicted his rejection in a number of ways. And one way he did this was through a parable. In a parable, Jesus speaks of God being a very gracious and benevolent landowner, taking out his vineyard and leasing it to other people, a landowner, leasing out to servants. While he's far away, he sends delegations. Go and collect some of the return from my vineyard for me. Each time... The renters, they will beat and kill the delegation. This is the way Israel treated her prophets. That's what it's meant to symbolize throughout history. But afterward, at the very end, the landowner sends his son, saying, they will respect my son. Did they? No. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord. The religious leaders, when he said this, knew that he spoke about them, and they did, by the way, prove him right. What's interesting about this verse is that Peter also preached this verse. Not only did he hear Jesus quote it during his earthly ministry, but Peter himself preached the verse. It's about 30 years earlier than when he wrote this letter, but nevertheless, it was evidently written on his heart. It's Acts chapter 4, and Peter's under arrest. The high priest called him to account. Again, we already mentioned the problem with the priesthood in the times of Jesus. 
And these are men like Annas and Caiaphas, the very men who were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. And let me read to you Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. He goes on and says, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, Peter says, you rejected the one person, the very person God sent to redeem you. And this is like, he is saying, a builder who's received a stone from the quarry. That stone has been given all of the treatment to be the cornerstone. It is perfectly square. It is chipped. It is chiseled. It is ready. And the builder says, nah, give me something else. But ultimately, in the end, that cornerstone becomes the cornerstone for the building. And that was the nation of Israel. The religious leaders... And that is, by the way, you and I, apart from the grace of God, shining light into our dark, depraved souls. We are in the same boat that they were, lest the grace of God. And we see in verse 8 that this stone causes stumbling. It's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who believe. That's what Jesus becomes. It's quite remarkable. Jesus, the same person, to one group of people, is so precious in value. He is the source of all of our hope, yet to another group of people. He is nothing but a stumbling stone. And we're not told here, by the way, what causes stumbling, what it is about Jesus that causes stumbling. We could imagine, I guess, we know that Jesus calls us to repentance. I mean, this idea of forsaking sin, some of the things that we enjoy most in life, to say voluntarily, I'm never going to do them again, I'm going to come and follow Jesus, that could be a stone of stumbling. Maybe it's the necessity of lordship, having to bow and knee before Jesus, coming in under his full authority, making him king, that's a stone of stumbling. Maybe it's just conflict with God's definition of concepts. Think about how God defines love and how the world defines love. Think about how God defines justice and the world defines justice. There's so many things that are at odds. I can see how this can be a stumbling. It could be his exclusivity. You heard what Peter said at the end of that message. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, that's an exclusive statement. You either turn to Jesus and go to heaven, or you turn from him and go to hell. That'll divide people. And notice in this passage as well how closely Peter aligns Jesus with his word. In verse 8, we might expect him to continue his discussion. He's been talking about Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the one over whom people will stumble. 
But notice when they disobey, it's not that they disobey Jesus in verse 8, but the Word. And that's how closely Jesus is aligned to the Word. Peter writes to this doom, they were also appointed. That's a tricky statement right there. Typically, there's two main ways to understand that, and I think mostly how you interpret it is, is going to be the theology that you bring to the text, namely your view of God and your view of man. Um, in other words, to what extent is God sovereign in our salvation, and to what extent does a fallen man have an ability to choose God? Now, the first view, God appoints those who disobey to stumble. You can imagine that. Someone who is going to reject God is going to stumble as a result of that rejection. That view might cite Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh during that Exodus event? He repeatedly hardened his heart, and then God responded. As a consequence, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, God appoints consequences for disobedience. The second way, God appoints those who reject Jesus both to disobey him and to stumble. And this view might cite Jesus quoting Isaiah, Um, He's speaking to an unbelief that seems unwavering and unchanging. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand, and be healed. And this view says that God's not going to to intervene, and he ordains that people will be allowed to continue in their unbelief without intervening and changing. In other words, God has ordained that some people remain in their unbelief. I think that latter view is better. Um, There's different views on it again, but in the context, this idea of appointed, it's the same word used back in verse 6. In verse 6, I lay in Zion or I appoint in Zion. God is doing the work there. God appoints not only the choice stone, but those who stumble over it. Whereas Paul says he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he wishes. I think the bigger question out of this text is, am I appointed to doom, or am I appointed to heaven? I think that that question can be answered right now. What is my relationship to Jesus Christ? That's how we answer that question. In other words, is Jesus of precious value to you this morning? Is he of precious value to you because you've tasted of the kindness of God? In other words, do you see your sin and your separation from God? And do you believe that God sent Jesus to die for your sin? And do you turn to him? And do you live for Jesus? There is no doom that can ever come between you and God if you believe upon Jesus Christ. And if you do, you are a living stone. You're built off the cornerstone. And that means the Lord has added you to his house. And with others, he's building up a spiritual house. And in our text this morning, what evidence of that is a a change, a priesthood. You're designed to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And as we close in light of this text today, I've reflected upon what God is doing here And Emmanuel, I just want to take the moment as we close to thank you for being a spiritual sacrifice, for functioning as a living stone and responding to what God is doing as he's placing you alongside others. Because I'll tell you what, it is indeed a sacrifice. 
Uh, some of you work over 40 hours a week. The days of working 40 hours a week, boy, those used to be the days. Some of you are, are, are business owners. You have a very full week. Some of you are moms. You're raising children full time. Uh, energy is as valuable a commodity as time is. But some of you have many good commitments in life. You use your retirement to live for the glory of God. But as a spiritual house for the holy priesthood, you come together and you offer up these sacrifices. Sacrifices of talent and time and means and ability. And God is using you. God has placed you just where you are. And my encouragement today is to keep going. Keep being used by God. Let God build up a house through you, through your faithfulness, through your obedience, and through your giftedness. You see, through Christ, we get to do what we do. And in Christ, we get to grow to build his church. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you for the kindness of Jesus Christ. Thank you for taking us and weaving us together. Thank you for the promise, Jesus, to build your church. I pray for the many who are laboring diligently, for the many who are giving of their talent that you've given and the time that you've allotted to be part of what you're doing. Father, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would fill them with joy and satisfaction in their work. I pray that you would expand their gifts and their desires to use them. And I pray that you would reward them, not only in the life to come, but even now, that they may get to see some manner of fruit in the work that they do. You are Lord of your church, and we are thankful for that. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.